Well, good morning, church. It's good to be able to worship the Lord Jesus Christ together like this. You know, we've been slowly working through in our summer series the book of Proverbs. And today, as we continue on in this series, we are going to be looking at very specifically the blessings and the beauty of Lady Wisdom, who is a very prominent figure in the book of Proverbs. And primarily, we're going to be looking today at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 to 35, and we're going to be hopping around a bit to bring in sort of this overall picture of wisdom here. Now, I said that we were going to be talking about the beauty and the blessings of Lady Wisdom, and I think it's really important for us to understand why in this passage here we have such an emphasis on Lady Wisdom's beauty and her appeal as she speaks and calls out to people to uh, receive her knowledge. Now, for us as human beings, you don't really have to tell us or teach us too much how to do this, but we have a natural attraction to things that we consider to be beautiful. And whether that's natural things like in the world or it's human physical attractiveness, there's a sense in us that we know something is particularly attractive. We like things, for example, that have symmetry, that have patterns, that have order, and we don't like things that are disorderly or asymmetrical and so on. Now, there was interesting, I read about a University of Toronto study that was conducted on female physical attractiveness, and they found that the reason that many people find the actress Jessica Alba to be particularly appealing is because when you take uh, the profiles of women and you average them all together, her face is found to be just about in the center of the average of the majority of female faces put together, which suggests that what we like actually is average in the middle, order, symmetry. Now, the reason I think that we love this, actually, is because we as people who are made in the image of God love the things that God has made. We are made like Him, made to reflect His goodness, His glory, His order, and His good way of doing things. And therefore, when we see things in this world that reflect that, the nature of our God, our hearts naturally gravitate towards them. We don't need to be taught this. We just implicitly understand it. Now, beauty is incredibly powerful because beauty tugs at the heart, whereas arguments, logic, and stuff tug at the mind. And what we're seeing here in the book of Proverbs is that, yes, you do have exhortations and commands, don't do this and do this, things of that sort, just like you see, for example, in Deuteronomy and the other books of the law, specific commands. But there's another way to reach people and to urge them to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, and that is by painting pictures and appealing to the heart directly with an appeal to beauty. And that's what's actually going on in here. In the book of Proverbs here, the wise father, this king, appeals to his son to live God's way, to embrace God's pattern of life, not just with words, but with a particular picture as well. And in this case, the picture that he is painting is a beautiful portrait of Lady Wisdom. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, this is how he describes Lady Wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. See, the way that you and I normally fight uh, bad behavior, especially in our kids, you know, or when we see it around the world, is uh, we usually threaten with punishment because it's very quick and it's very direct. 
But ultimately, when you think about it, fear is actually a very poor motivator because when the fear source is removed and the threat of punishment is removed, so is the motivation as well to obey, right? You walk out of the room, you leave them there for a little while, they think they can get away with it, right? And they just go for it. So that is one way, of course, that we can get people to function a certain way by to use, but to use fear. But as I already explained earlier, there is another way to motivate people, and I think that is... Um, a powerful one as well, and that is, like I said, an appeal to something that is better. In this particular case, how does the writer, how does the speaker here motivate the son to fight against the pull of easy money and the allure of the beautiful temptress and adulteress that's found in the other chapters of the book and all the powers and stuff that the world has to offer? And the answer to that, as we're going to see, is that the way to fight beauty and the power of the pull of sin is actually with a greater pleasure, with a greater power, with a greater sense of beauty. See, it's not just enough when you're fighting temptation to say, don't look or to run away from it. That will work, and it's something that you should do. But if you want some stopping power, something that's strong inside of you, you have to replace the desire that's in thy heart with a desire for something that's better and ultimately more pleasing. So in other words, I think in good parenting or in good spiritual discipleship, sometimes you have to use consequences and sometimes you have to use intrinsic uh, motivation to obey. It's like the carrot and the stick problem that we talk about when it comes to uh, raising children. Sometimes you need uh, you need a sense of punishment and consequences, and other times you need a strong internal motivation to appeal to that. I think the Christian life, you know, can function very much in the same way. It's very easy in a church when you look at things that you don't like to shame people, to judge them, or to go after them, and to get them to conform outwardly without caring actually about what's going on in the heart. And if you do that over and over again, what will happen is you will create a culture that is based on rules that are not created in the Bible, and you will uh, lay the foundation, I think, for breeding legalism, or the idea that we simply obey and we do things on the outside, but with no understanding of why we do them on the inside. In fact, real change involves not just the stick, I think, but using the carrot. That is, explain to people why it is, what is so appealing about what you should be doing that is in accordance with God's rules and his laws. So for us as parents, it's way easier to take away dessert or to take away ice cream for your children. It's a much harder thing to explain to them, to delve into their hearts, uh, to talk to them about why they behave the way that they do, why they are sinful, and what is deep down inside that is driving them to act a certain way. The second way, the carrot, takes way longer actually to do, but I would ultimately say it is transformative, and it is the way in which the proverbial writer here is appealing to his son's heart to say, I don't want you just to change on the outside, son. I want you to be different on the inside. And therefore, I want you to see why what I'm saying here is far more joyous, far more pleasurable, and ultimately far better for you because it will be appealing to your soul. And this is what God actually wants for you. Way harder, it takes way longer, but the result is far better. Now, unless you yourself are actually convinced by the picture, and not just going along because somebody told you what to, you'll actually never believe it. And this, I think, is what takes discipline and skill as a parent or a spiritual discipler. 
Basically, the father here is coming up to his son and saying, son, look, I know. I know you like girls. I know that you find the adulteress's beauty to be tempting to you. But let me show you actually a far better date. Let me show you who this lady wisdom is. And she's absolutely gorgeous if you look at her. When I am done painting a picture for you of the peace, the prosperity, the kindness, the honor, the riches, the good, the comfort, the security, and intimacy that she brings, you will see inside your own soul that nobody else can compare to her, and that's who you want to be with. Make her your closest friend and your acquaintance. It doesn't matter if you're single, you're male, or you're female. This applies to everyone here. Everybody needs to have a relationship with this gorgeous lady wisdom. Now, the question for us as we look at this text is, why is a relationship with Lady Wisdom so supremely valuable? What about her makes her so appealing that God puts this into the scriptures and says, look at her. Let's read here verses 13 to 15 just to see. You can follow along the screens. The text says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. You know, the first thing, for those of you who are aligning, that we learned here, really, is that wisdom is supremely valuable. No question whatsoever. Priceless, actually, in fact. If you look at the text, you'll notice how many financial words that the writer uses here and heaps up one after another. Gain, profit, gold, silver, jewels. I know many people in our world think that money is sort of the end goals of life, and if you have enough money, you should, you'll be happy, and that's why you hoard it. But the writer of the Proverbs here says, no, actually. As valuable as you think money is, the more important thing here actually is to gain wisdom. She far surpasses all of these things. Nothing actually can compare with her. Now, One of the reasons that biblical wisdom, personified as lady wisdom here, is so immensely valuable here is because she actually can't be acquired in the same way that money and silver and gold can be acquired. So you can get gold by owning a gold mine, and you can come into lots of money through getting an inheritance, but you cannot get wisdom in that way. So imagine that you know somebody who is a slacker, uneducated, spends all their time partying, but they have this rich father who is a CEO of a major bank, and then the man dies, leaving behind his son the inheritance of this entire banking corporation. You will never hear of a son who wakes up after his father dies and says, I know calculus, and I know how to run a bank. And the reason why you'll never see that, him rise to suddenly going from being an irresponsible person to being the CEO of a major bank, is because even though he inherits the title to his father's business, he does not inherit his father's wisdom and skill in knowing how to run the company. See, wisdom is the only asset in the world that can't be acquired in the same way that we pass on other assets. You can't create a wisdom extraction company, pay other people to work in it and get them to insert it into your brain. It doesn't work like that. It has to be acquired. You know, in Job chapter 28, the patriarch Job actually makes a very similar observation when he says, he notes there are mines where you can get gold and silver from. There's a place that you can extract iron out of the earth. But he says, where shall wisdom be found? Now, 
We know in the Proverbs where wisdom ultimately comes from. So Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But what you see is critical here is that not only is the source the Lord, but you have to get it yourself. There's no shortcuts whatsoever to getting wisdom. That's why it says, blessed is the one who finds or seeks wisdom and not just inherits it or happens to stumble across it. Nobody stumbles into wisdom. Everyone works for it, and it only comes from the Lord. Now, the question we ask here at this point is, why then is wisdom so valuable? The text says wisdom is valuable, and you can't get her any other way. The question is, why is she more valuable than all the money in the world? Look with me at verses 16 to 18. Long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor, and her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now here in this part, we see the immense blessings that Lady Wisdom has to offer her gifts. And part of those gifts include things like long life, riches, honor, and peace. These are things that everybody wants. Now, Bible scholars who have looked at this passage in detail and done archaeology in the Middle East have noted that Lady Wisdom here bears a very similar sort of a feel to an Egyptian goddess by the name of Ma'at. Now, Ma'at actually has uh, in her hands two things as well. Just the difference is that in her left hand, she holds an ankh, which means stands for life, and in her right hand, she holds a vas, or a scepter, that represents power, riches, and wealth. What's so interesting about this is that Lady Wisdom has similar gifts, except the the gifts are actually reversed. In her right hand instead, Lady Wisdom does not hold power and wealth, but she holds life instead. And I think this is actually really significant for us because I think what it's primarily trying to show is what is more important here. I think it's having life. What's interesting about uh, Ma'at and the Egyptian goddess is because I think she actually represents what our materialistic culture thinks is priority in this life. Our materialistic culture thinks that the solution to having a good life is to hold in your right hand wealth, honor, and power. And from those things you get life. Now, Basically, how it works in our world is you find some sort of passion, some sort of career, some sort of siren, basically, that you want to worship, whether that's the stock market, investments, or something, and you throw all your time and your energy into it, and you hold onto it firmly with your right hand, and you hope that if you cling to this thing, it will pay off in the long run, and that it will be good for you. And we understand it's so important to us to be rich that people are quite willing to sacrifice their family, their integrity, their sense of even personal morality to get this. That is why you can have politicians today and leaders who are absolutely immoral and known for corruption in their character, but as long as they get the job done and get the economy going, nobody cares. You see what we really value as a culture today, very similar to what people valued thousands of years ago as they held up Ma'at holding Um, riches in her right hand. This is why the Bible is so different from the culture of its day and also the culture of today. And the Bible says, don't chase wealth and chase honor. You chase Lady Wisdom instead. Chase the life that is held into our right hand, and the rest of these things are secondary and will follow instead. God here is saying, don't chase whatever the world is chasing, but chase me. Chase the wisdom of lady wisdom instead. Make that your priority. And what will happen is that you will have a life that is flourishing, pleasant, peaceful, and secondarily about material blessings. 
See, the world tells you, figure out who you are and what you want to achieve. God says, actually, figure out who you need to be in me and make that your priority. It's a big difference. And you can see the actual folly of chasing ma'at or the things of this world. You see that actually on display on the screens of Hollywood. You would think that if people had wealth and fame, they would be happier and better off in their lives. And yet, if you look at the lives of many Hollywood stars, stars, they're absolute disasters and wrecks. Multiple marriages, drug addictions, alcohol abuse, suicide, all these sorts of things. Why? Because God did not design us to live off of money, fame, and wealth. In fact, those things without a view of God are actually toxic to the soul and will be poisonous to you and kill you. That's why it's so important to have the wisdom of God. See, if you chase money, money really is very limited, you know, in terms of what it can do. You know, as you've often probably heard people say, money can buy you a house, right? But it can't actually buy you a home. Godly wisdom is what is able to make you a home with God-honoring children and relationships that flourish and represent Christ. Money can actually buy you limited health and property insurance that lasts only so long, But only godly wisdom can buy you eternal security in a land and a place where you will never get sick and you will never need to call an ambulance again. Money can buy you an engagement ring, but only godly wisdom can lead you to the path of unconditional Christ-like love that is reciprocated and displayed in a Christian marriage. See how limited money actually is and what godly wisdom can actually give you? Wisdom can build things for you that no amount of money in the world can possibly buy. Now, the reason that money can't solve our problems and why the world's wisdom makes this place dysfunctional is because of what the Bible calls sin. If sin had never entered into the world, we would not have selfishness in our homes, we would not have conditional love in our marriages, We would not have thieves, and we would not have diseases. So when God declares here in this particular text that wisdom is associated with the tree of life, what he is saying is that he is linking his wisdom, his ways of living, to the original way that human beings were meant to flourish and to survive. It's an allusion, actually, to the Garden of Eden, a time in which human beings lived in perfect harmony, Adam and Eve living every day without sin, perfect marital relations with one another, and also eating freely from this tree of life that gave them immortality. But the Bible shows us after they sinned, they were separated from God, and they had to leave the garden, and as a result of that, they couldn't taste the tree of life. What God here is saying through the book of Proverbs is that if you embrace wisdom, what you are actually getting is a taste of the Garden of Eden and a foretaste of what heaven is going to look like one day when all these relationships will exist and they live by the wisdom and the law of God forever and eternity. You are tasting a world that does not have a hint of the bitterness of sin. And nothing else on the world comes close to this. You get a chance to taste heaven on earth in the lives of people who live by godly wisdom and adhere to Lady Wisdom's principles. So the idea here of saying she's like a tree of life to say is pointing forward and say this is the route out of out of death into eternal life. So when we acquire godly wisdom, we speak gentleness to people, we're kind, we make peace. We are declaring to all the people in this world that godly wisdom is to be held in your right hand and the life that comes with her. And we treat people on this world to a taste of a restored humanity. It's quite grand, actually, to live by Lady Wisdom. Now, these are 
magnificent gifts that Lady Wisdom offers here. And I think it's important for us to remember something about how to read the Proverbs that I alluded to in the very first message that I gave on this. Some of these things that are here are Proverbs that are partially realized in our experience. That is, they are generally true. It's the fabric that God has built into the world, you know, the order that God has put into here. Generally speaking, if you work hard, you'll usually get rich, and if you slack, you will be poor. But what we need to understand is that these Proverbs also need to be read in the entire context of the wisdom literature that's in the Bible. So the Proverbs speaks very uh, in, in, in punchlines, short little aphorisms here that are not meant to be all-encompassing and to embrace all the cases without exceptions. So, for example, if you were to read the book of Ecclesiastes, you would almost get a sense that the book is pessimistic compared to uh, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes will say things like, vanity, all is vanity, what's the point of working for anything under the sun? And you put the two together, you'd almost think, hmm, Proverbs is saying, if I do this, it will all go well. Ecclesiastes says, whatever I do, it's not going to go well. So, what is it? Now, the point is, you've got to put these two together to understand sort of holistically how life works. Ecclesiastes shows you that there are exceptions, and because of sin in this world, things don't normally, don't always add up. You may work hard, but because of sin and injustice in the world, your goodness and the things you do are swept away by evil. Now, the book of Job, I think, is immensely helpful here because it helps round out our view of wisdom literature, and it helps us to understand that even when Ecclesiastes-type things happen in life and disaster occurs to us, we should never just purely despair. Yes, sin is a problem in the world, but the book of Job shows that even when absolutely disastrous things happen to you, like you lose your family, you lose all of your wealth, there is still a purpose behind it. And for those who trust in God, God will ultimately vindicate at the end of the day. This is why it's so important to read the whole Bible and to look at all of these things together. God has a plan, and he'll work it out. And in the case of Proverbs, yes, in some cases, after working hard, your life may be swept away by injustice. But remember, there are a number of other Proverbs that speak about trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledging him. He'll make your path straight. You know what that's saying? It's saying, don't worry, at the end of the day, even if it doesn't go well for you and you're not in the 90%, it will ultimately go well for you because of the security and the riches you will have in the king's lands for all of eternity. The Proverbs will not fail ultimately. I think it's important for us to understand that these gifts that Lady Wisdom offers here ultimately will never fail. Now, there's a second thing I want to show us here about what wisdom has to offer and what we need to see here and what's so important about wisdom. Look at verses 19 to 20 with me. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Now, the second thing I want us to notice here about wisdom is that wisdom is built into God's world. Now, God is very clear from this text, exercised his immense wisdom when he made the world. And we get an expansion of this when you look at Proverbs chapter 8 that talks about wisdom and how God used wisdom in making the mighty mountains, you know, and laying out the sea and making sure that it had boundaries and that it wouldn't go too far out of those boundaries. 
So all this to say is that when you look, for example, at the intricate pattern of a snowflake, or you explore here the carpet of lush green trees that grace the mountains here of the North Shore, when you look at the waves that lap up against the shore here of English Bay, all these things that you're looking at are things that God has crafted in his infinite wisdom. Now, this is contra the wisdom of our world that argues that everything that you see here is simply the product of evolution and chance. You know, Richard Dawkins was the famous atheist and scientist who said this, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Natural selection is the blind watchmaker. Blind because it does not see ahead, does not plan consequences, has no purpose in view, yet the living results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the illusion of design and planning. I look at that quote in his book, and I read that and I said, how can you say that? Maybe it looks like it was designed because it was designed. You know, I understand. It's coming from a different worldview, a completely different framework. When you look, for example, at the end of there of uh, verses 19 to 20, that last part about how it says the clouds drop down the dew, do you know what that is? It's a comment, actually, on what we know today in our scientific knowledge as the water cycle, right? The water cycle that's absolutely vital for all life to flourish on this planet, for our crops to get rain and to be able to grow Right? Rainwater falls, it goes down into the groundwater, rivers, goes out to the ocean, evaporation occurs, and then becomes rain again, and so on. That's what he's talking about here. Now, did you know that the water that is evaporated from the world's oceans and, gets, and comes down later as rainwater to uh, allow us to grow our crops, do you know how much of it actually is evaporated every single year? I was doing some reading on this, and I found it was 495,000 cubic kilometers now, that kind of number, we just really have no way of fathoming how much it is. Let me, let me just explain. One cubic meter of water, one meter by one meter by one meter, weighs one ton, okay? Now, 495,000 kilometers, cubic kilometers of this, weighs approximately the amount of 5,000 sort of Great Walls of China, if you were to think about that, how long the Great Wall of China is, and to imagine all of that coming out of the sky every year, that is an immense amount of water that falls onto the earth. And yet, in the wisdom of God, God does not just allow Great Walls of China to come flooding over the earth, crushing human beings under it, but he causes all of that uh, rain, tons and tons and tons of it, to come down in tiny little 30 milligram droplets called rain. And you can walk out in the midst of a rainstorm here in Vancouver, and though millions and millions of tons actually descend on the whole world, it does not kill you. It would be a very different story if our usual way of watering the earth was hail the size of baseballs instead. Actually, I did read about a village that experienced hail the size of baseballs once in the late 1800s, and it killed 200 people in it. If God did not design the world with wisdom and give us rain droplets, most of us will be dead from the water cycle. Why that's so important to understand is that even many scientists have observed, atheists included, that the world seems to be extremely fine-tuned to be able to support life. Dr. Paul Davies, who's a physicist, 
has made the observation that if the nuclear strong forces that are in an atom, that is the force that holds together electrons and neutrons and protons, all these tiny subatomic particles that are in every single thing that composes all matter in this world, he said that if the strong force there was just 2% or a few percent weaker in here, the world as we know it would not function. For example, he explains that hydrogen in the sun would not fuse the same way and the sun would not give the same type of energy that it gives, making life impossible on our planet. Just 2%. There are other scientists who observe that there are many other constants in this world that if you were to adjust them slightly, the whole universe would unravel. Very strange that our entire universe seems to be very delicately calibrated to support life on this earth. This, I think, actually is the incredible wisdom of God. A God who, as we make technological advances, as we plumb the depths of physics and we explore the world, we realize, God, you are a master here, and we are exploring the mind of a genius See, the incredible wisdom of God is everywhere in nature. And this is why in Proverbs, the writer actually draws a lot from the wisdom of nature, pointing it out and showing the immense wisdom of God and what you can learn. Now, I don't know how many of you know this about me, but I actually really love birds. They're actually one of my favorite creatures, and I can't uh, have any right, or be around them too much because my wife is deathly afraid of birds, so I'll never probably ever be able to own a bird. Now, one of the birds that I actually find most fascinating is the kingfisher, the kingfisher is uh, an amazing bird in that it can spot fish from really far away, and it swoops down out of the sky and goes straight into the water and snaps these fish out. Somehow also its visual system is able to uh, 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 take into account refractions in water, and basically it almost never misses. Now the kingfisher is able to actually penetrate the water with its beak that is perfectly aerodynamically designed for it to fly through the air and also with the way that water wicks past the beak to enter the water actually without a splash, allowing it to get at the fish and nip them actually out of the water and to feed itself. The kingfisher can hover in its place until it finds the fish and then it just goes for it. Now, I read also about this man named Eiji Nakatsu, who is a Japanese engineer who was also an avid bird watcher. And he observed the same thing about the kingfisher. And as a result of his observations of the kingfisher, chose to redesign the noses of the Japanese bullet trains to match the facial features of the kingfisher and also its beak. And this is what allowed the Japanese bullet trains to achieve their maximum speed of 320 kilometers an hour. In fact, there's actually a whole branch of science today that is called biomimicry. And biomimicry actually attempts to copy nature what nature does to solve real-world engineering problems. And their tagline is this. It's an acronym, WWND, and it's What Would Nature Do? You know, when I read this, I couldn't help but laugh when I thought about it, and I realized it's so close. It's so close to what Christians think. Except as Christians, we think, what would Jesus do? When I look at the world around us, I say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do as he designed a kingfisher? What would I do then to mimic his infinite wisdom? Nature's not smart. God is smart. And we copy him and his wisdom. See, our culture that is godless and doesn't know the true and living God has no choice but to worship Mother Nature. But we know the truth and that there is a God who rules over all things. And we do well to study the wisdom of God in the natural world and to learn from it. I think that's why all throughout Proverbs, there are these commands, like to look at the ant, look at the lizard, look at all these other fearfully and wonderfully, creature, uh, wonderfully made creatures and learn from them because they are infinitely well-designed. They are well-designed by an infinitely wise God. 
See, when you and I study things like astronomy, mathematics, or physics, and you practice engineering, you know, looking at animals and trying to copy them to make devices that promote human flourishing or promote transportation, all these things that you do should drive you actually to your knees and to worship God for the immense wisdom that he has on display in every part of the world. And the amazingness of this, I think, is just praiseworthy. That's why I think that many Christians should go home and spend some time getting BBC documentaries and National Geographic and just putting them on for your family to watch, and then you worship as you watch these things and look at the creatures that God has made. God designed the world with wisdom in mind. And when you choose to do things that go outside of the order that he has put into place, that is unwise living, and you go against the grain of what God has built in this world, and the results are disastrous. And that's why harm comes to people, when you try to live in a way that is not the way that God has intended or designed for you to live. Now, as wonderful as it is to worship God for his wisdom, there's actually something else that Lady Wisdom offers to us here, to those who listen to her. Look at verses 21 to 25. My son, she says, do not lose, my son, he says, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and there will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you won't be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. See, the last thing that Lady Wisdom here offers us is, number three, I would say, personal protection. She offers protection not just for this life, but also for your eternal soul. She'll make sure that as you go about in life, though you may walk through many difficulties in life that might threaten you, you will actually find a secure path to walk on. And I think this is what Habakkuk was saying in Habakkuk 3.19 when he said, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high my high places. And what he's saying is, I think, something that many of you who have lived long as Christians know. There are times in your life when you're going through absolutely such difficulty, you don't know what to do, and you're struggling, and you go to God, and you say, please, God, I'm too weak. I don't know what to do. I don't feel wise at this moment. I feel like I'm going to be overwhelmed. I feel like you've placed me on a very high place, like a mountain goat that's standing on a tiny little ledge, and if you don't show me a secure path, I will fall to my death. You live long enough as a Christian? You live long enough actually in life? You will experience things like that. But the sweetness of being a Christian is that you know, you know that these words come true for us. That when we do go to God and we practice his wisdom, he does show us a secure path. It is very difficult sometimes to walk and you will feel like you are slipping, but the path is always secure because of the wisdom of God who has placed the path for you there. The question for us, brothers and sisters, is can we trust God to cling to that? Do we believe that we'll actually be able to sleep well at night even though we're perched high up there on the ledge because our anchor is secure and the God who has put us there has a way of getting us out? See, God is our confidence. He is our defender according to this. And we should not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul in hell. To embrace wisdom is to embrace the ultimate path that leads to life. And there is where we find our ultimate personal security. Now, now, those are three things that wisdom does for us. I'd like to, you to, to show you three things that wisdom does in our lives for others. 
verses 27 to 28. Look at this, number four. Wisdom always gives good to others. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Okay? So in this particular section at the end here, we learn that wisdom is not just of a benefit to you, but of a benefit to those around you. You know, when we think about how Canadians live according to their philosophy of life, the Canadian motto and mantra that undergirds most of our thinking is, do your best to be individually happy and make sure you don't hurt anybody or offend them in the process. That's typically what it means to be a Canadian. Now, if you were to measure that philosophy of thinking and life according to the Bible standard, the Bible would say that falls woefully short of what it means to live a good life. The Bible says that's actually not good enough. In fact, the wisdom of God here actually says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Now, that's very different because that's saying you have an obligation actually to always do good to other people. It's not just about, I don't hurt anybody, that's why I'm a good person. The Bible says, no, no, you have an obligation always to do good, never to withhold good. That's what it means to actually live a wise life. And you see how the Canadian standard falls so far short of God's wisdom for life. This actually matches what Paul has to say when he quotes Jesus, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The goal of life is not just to grab, but the goal of life, according to the wisdom of God, is to give and to give it all away. And that's what it means to be blessed. See, we normally think of sin as something negative that we do to somebody else. But we, here we learn the, pro- the proper question to ask when it comes to, am I living a godly and a wise life, is not, Am I hurting anyone? The question to ask is, who am I serving? It's not who am I hurting, but who am I serving? And then you will know whether you have wisdom. Let me show you quickly a second thing that we learned here. Verses 29 to 30. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. See, this this shows us, I would say number five in your outline, is that wisdom builds an environment of trust with others. And this is absolutely foundational to anything. Communities cannot function without trust. A marriage does not function without trust. And here wisdom says, this is the type of benefit that wisdom gives to those around you. A community of trust, people who do not plan evil against their neighbors, people who don't argue with others for no reason, people who promote uh, a lack of harm. Promote safety, that is, and bring no harm. Let me show you one other thing here, verses 31 to 35. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. To where the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. In other words, you see here, number six, that wisdom promotes peace, actually, with others. No fighting, no violence. We don't go this way. We disassociate from those who are violent and mean to seize things from other people with their power. Whether this is with physical violence or manipulation and violence with words, the one who is wise steers away from this because this behavior is absolutely reprehensible to the Lord. Now, I touched on these things very quickly because this is just the tip of the iceberg of the proverbial wisdom. And in the coming weeks, we are going to see more of this. That is how godly wisdom practically affects your speech, your relationships with your neighbors, your friendships, your love, how you use your money, gossip, and all these other things. My point is this. 
Everyone in this world has a choice to make. And if you choose the godly path of wisdom, godly wisdom offers you not only personal benefit that's eternal, but it will offer benefit to everyone around you as well in multiple spheres. And that's what the whole book of Proverbs was going to show you. The question for us is this. Will we be motivated by gazing at the beauty of God, looking at the beauty of Lady Wisdom, and having our hearts so enthralled by her that we are desirous to take it and then be a blessing to other people as well? See, Proverbs 9, chapter 9, verse 1 to 2 says this about Lady Wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. In other words, in plain English, what this is saying is that the wisdom of God waits for you. She's a beautiful hostess. She's actually prepared food, real meat, steaks for you to be able to eat and to sink your teeth into. And this stuff is delicious to your soul. She's mixed fine wine, delicious beverages that you can drink to quench your thirsty soul. And she calls you to say, come on in and eat. Come and take from me without giving me anything in return. Now, Lady Wisdom here may just be a poetic personification of the wisdom of God, but we in the church age don't have to think abstractly about this, but we know what the true fulfillment of this is, and that the true fulfillment, the true wisdom of God is none other than the person of Jesus Christ, who also calls to us and says, come to me, all of you who labor and are burdened. Don't pay me anything, just come to me and find rest. Come and drink from me and be satisfied instead. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us explicitly that Jesus came, became to us the wisdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 11, 18 to 19, Jesus himself says that wisdom is known by her fruits, and he identifies with lady wisdom from the book of Proverbs. In other words, if you want to know about the wisdom of God in our time, you need to know Jesus Christ, who is the true wisdom of God. Think about the six things that we talked about with regards to wisdom, right? Wisdom being supremely valuable. Jesus Christ himself is supremely valuable. Second one, Jesus Christ is the wise one through whom God created the world, and he holds it all together. That's why nature looks so perfect and full of wisdom. Jesus is our good shepherd, our best bet for personal protection and defense in this life. Regarding what Jesus does for other people, number four, Jesus never withheld good from anyone, and he urges his followers to love their neighbors as themselves. Number five, about truth, Jesus built his church on truth, giving a foundation for trusts. And six, Jesus himself did not respond in violence to those who were harming him, whether they were his Roman or his Jewish executioners, but he instead suffered and died, making peace so that we could be saved. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. The entire wisdom of the Proverbs points towards him. He is the fulfillment of lady wisdom, and he calls to us to take the path of life, which we now know today as the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the road to salvation, forgiveness of God, and the road to living an ultimate godly life. Jesus says and tells us what we could not see in the same way that lady wisdom calls out to us and says, there are pitfalls ahead, there are ch- there's a chasm of sin and destruction that is waiting for you unless you change your course in the way that you live. See how similar the two are. See, what does it mean to actually be wise in this world? Wisdom, to be wise, is to know Jesus, to follow him, to trust him, and to treasure him, and to keep him as your closest and most intimate friend. 
Wisdom in God's eyes is not determined by how much money you have in the bank or how many letters you have behind your name, but it is determined by how well you know Jesus Christ. And do you respond to his call on your life? Proverbs 9.8 says this, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Now, maybe you're not a Christian here today and you want change in your life or you're listening to this broadcast and you feel slightly offended about hearing about this notion that you're a sinner. The question for you is, can you listen to the wisdom of God? You, know, you might be burnt out. You're so tired. You're at your wit's end with your kids. You've lost your spouse. You have bad relationships. You're in major debt today, and you don't know what to do about it, but you just stumbled on this message today, and you're listening to this thing, and you're thinking to my, yourself, I need wisdom somehow or another. I just don't know what to do. You know what the problem is that you're facing is that you've been driving on the highway of life without understanding anything about the, how the highway was built or even how God has designed you to go and travel on this highway. You know, I think it's really like this. I remember a friend of mine who owns a car shop telling me about this girl who one day brought in this new car that she had been gifted, this uh, like sports car or something. And she was new to actually driving. And the engine had major problems. And when they took it apart to have a look at it, they discovered that the engine was totally wrecked as well as the transmission. And they figured out what she had done was that whoever taught her how to drive or how she had learned, she had driven this standard vehicle in first gear only on the road and on the highway and totally destroyed the engine of her car. Now, for those of us who know how to drive a standard car and know how to operate a stiff shape, you look at that, you say, that's absolutely ridiculous. How could anyone do such a thing? And my point is this. That's how many people drive in life today with no understanding, actually, about the type of vehicle that we're supposed to drive, even how the road conditions are, or even to consult God and some wisdom to know how we're supposed to function if you go to God for wisdom, God's wisdom tells us how to shift gears in life, how to avoid the problems and the potholes on the road. God's wisdom tells us even what right direction to be driving in. God's wisdom is the manual for how to get through this life and to make it to our ultimate destination. Most people have no idea where they're even driving to, and God says there is one place you're supposed to go, and there's one narrow road that leads to life. And the only way they're going to get there is by navigating the rules of the road. Do you want my wisdom to tell you what's up ahead? Do you want my wisdom to know how to drive? Do you want my wisdom? You've been limping along this far. Your car is breaking down. You can't get very far, and you don't know what's wrong. Turn to me instead. Will you not take my instructions for life? And for those of you who are listening here today, whether you're a Christian or not, my question is, how's your driving today? How's your driving are you driving according to the wisdom of God or are you driving according to your own wisdom? And can you hear Jesus calling out to you today to say, choose me. Stop trying the way that you have been going and choose me. Choose my wisdom. Go out into this world and look at the beauty of creation and realize I am infinitely wise and that anything I have to tell you is not because I'm here to crush you, but I'm here to actually lead you down a road that will take you to eternal security. I'm here for you, and you know that I love you and I care for you. Why? Because I died on the cross for your sins. That is the gospel call. Can you submit yourself to him and trust that through the work of his spirit, he will give you the wisdom that you need in order to navigate the pitfalls of this life? Brothers and sisters, the call of God here is to know wisdom, to know Jesus Christ as our intimate friend, and to order our lives according to him. And as we seek after his wisdom and we chase after him, may God give us the ability to follow him and let the world see 
the Jesus who lives in us, and the infinite wisdom of God that they so desperately need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us wisdom, O God, that is far more valuable than gold and silver. And wisdom, O God, that is revealed all throughout the natural world that shows us an immensely ingenious creator whom we should be able to trust with everything. God, we are so inadequate in our inventions that we actually have to copy what you have made in nature because your plans are so good. So I pray, Father, when we don't understand how to navigate life, we shouldn't just go about inventing our own things, but that we would look to Jesus Christ and we would also copy his life. Let us not be practitioners, Father, primarily of biomimicry, but of Jesus mimicry. When we don't know what to do, when our wisdom is not sufficient and we need a better design for life, let's not just copy nature, but let's copy you. So, Father, help us to love Lady Wisdom and ultimately Lady Wisdom personified and ultimately fulfilled through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see Jesus as absolutely lovely and that his commandments are pure life and joy to our soul. Help us to obey you, God, not out of fear of punishment, but out of absolute joy in our souls. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.